What Could You Do With Unshaken Faith? And How Do You Obtain It? I'm Jared Halverson, and these are the questions I want to ask the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob as we study chapter 4 of his inspiring book. In a previous episode, we studied Jacob chapter 7, Jacob's encounter with the Antichrist Sherem. As I read it, the climax of that narrative is verse 5, where we see the supposedly irresistible force, Sherem's anti-religious attacks, falling powerless to the immovable object, Jacob's faith, which could not be shaken. We discussed the tactics Sherem used and the ways that Jacob responded to, but one thing you need to know about Jacob is that this was not uncharted territory for him. He'd grown up in a family that endured all kinds of shaking, economic loss and social displacement, removal from familiar surroundings, physical trials in the wilderness, the emotional trauma of deep division and even open conflict within the family, and the sorrow of losing loved ones, either to physical death or to spiritual rebellion. Jacob's siblings covered the spectrum, from shakers like Laman, to the shaken like Lemuel, to the unshaken like Sam, to the apparently unshakable like Nephi, with his own parents showing moments of movement in both directions along that spectrum. So when Sherem came along hoping to shake him from the faith, Jacob responded with well-earned confidence. This wasn't boastful bravado, born of cocky self-assurance. This was humble faith, forged in the furnace of affliction. Jacob speaks of shaking more often than most Book of Mormon writers. In addition to what we saw in chapter 7, the shaking that results from frontal attacks on faith, he also speaks way back in 2 Nephi 9, remember that Jacob is the one speaking in that chapter, of those who love the truth and are not shaken. That time he's referring to shaking over hard truths, the ones that can be difficult to digest to the natural man or woman. That's another interesting source of spiritual shaking. Can we handle the hard sayings as a departing crowd once called the teachings of Jesus, or will we also go away as Jesus wondered aloud to his apostles? Then we come to Jacob chapter 4, where Jacob introduces the allegory of the olive tree that he'll teach in the next chapter. And there he worries that he might be shaken from his firmness in the spirit and stumble because of his over-anxiety for those that he's teaching. If the first form of shaking is most dangerous for the spiritually unsettled, and the second is hardest for what Thomas Paine might call the summer saint and the sunshine disciple. Number three is the type that strong believers face most often. Ward council members discussing, pe discussing people in need, family members worrying about struggling siblings, parents losing sleep as they wait and watch for a prodigal's return. Remember, Jacob uses the word anxiety more than any other scriptural writer to the point that I honestly wonder if his anxiety was the gnawing, seemingly inescapable, clinically diagnosable kind. Early in his ministry, he admits that his anxiety for others was great and always had been. He took the reins of responsibility from Nephi with a combination of faith and great anxiety. And in crying repentance to his wayward people, he was weighed down with even more anxiety for their spiritual welfare than what he usually felt. Mm -hmm. So how did Jacob steady himself? What were his hidden reserves of spiritual strength, and how did he replenish them? We already saw in chapter 7 that Jacob's unshakable faith was a gift from God. He'd been given revelations, many of them, experienced the ministering of angels, and even heard the voice of the Lord from time to time. But he was a prophet, and those kinds of experiences seemed to go with the territory. So what about you and me? My revelatory resume is a bit lacking compared to his. How does our faith become unshakable if our spiritual stature doesn't quite measure up to Jacob's, especially at times when our spiritual anxieties do? One of the most important answers comes in Jacob chapter 4. We study the scriptures, or as Jacob says, we search the prophets. 
precisely because we aren't prophets ourselves. Because we haven't had all the unshakable experiences the scriptures describe, we study the experiences of those who have and allow their faith to strengthen our own. As it says in Doctrine and Covenants 46, to some it is given to know with a surety that often escapes others, but to those others may be given to believe on their words that they also might have eternal life. So even with that seemingly lesser gift, there's no lesser reward. And as our belief gradually grows into something closer to perfect knowledge, we too become prophets with a lowercase p, the kind Moses wished all people would become. We too receive revelations, many of them, and develop the spirit of prophecy, which John de defines as the testimony of Jesus. And having all these witnesses, our hope and our faith becomes unshaken, just like the hope and faith of the prophets whose lives and lessons we are learning about. The writer of Hebrews talks about being compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, with the resulting strength allowing him to lay aside every weight. Remember Jacob talking about being weighed down by anxiety? As a kid in Southern California, I had a paper out for seven years, including all my years of high school. I never told the girls I was a paper boy. Of course, I referred to myself instead as a communications distribution specialist, but that's how I earned the money for my mission. It was a huge route, over 500 houses, so my saintly parents would drive as my brothers and I would launch papers out of the sliding door of the minivan. And some of my favorite days were the winter ones when the fog rolled in from the California coast, blanketing everything in a thick haze. Sometimes the fog was so enveloping that you could throw a paper and watch it disappear into the mist even before it hit the ground. All fog is is a low-lying cloud, and it will swallow from sight anything you throw into it. So picture that cloud of witnesses that the scriptures provide. Compassed about by their cloud of unshaken faith, we can throw in our anxieties and fears and watch them disappear, swallowed up by the grace of God. It's one of the blessings I treasure most from my years of searching the prophets. But that's not all. As the scriptures make our hope and faith unshaken, notice the power that results. Through the prophets, we have come to know Jesus, just like those prophets did. And thus we can command in his name until the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Of course, now you might be wondering, why would I need to command the elements? I'd much rather command the emotions, or the attitudes, or the actions of those I worry about, especially myself. But I think of all those things, and I realize that all are included in Jacob's metaphor. First, think of trees. The Savior tells his apostles that if they have enough faith of the unshaken kind, they can command a sycamore tree to be plucked up from the roots and cast into the sea. Again, to what purpose? Jesus was teaching the apostles about forgiveness at the time. And in that context, a tree is a perfect metaphor for an offense that requires real faith to forgive. Some harm that is so deeply rooted in our experience or identity that even chopping it out would leave a massive stump in the ground. With faith in Christ, however, we can pluck that tree by the roots and cast it into an ocean of forgiveness that is endless. What of mountains? God promised Enoch that if he would simply walk with him, he would have power to move mountains and turn rivers from their course. So let's add rivers to the mix along with the mountains we just mentioned. I used to wonder if those promises were just hyperbole until I realized that as a missionary, I both moved mountains and rerouted rivers. A mountain seems as immovable as it gets, a lot like the unbending people I tried to teach in Puerto Rico. Some of the staunchest would say, soy católico, nací católico, moriré católico, even the dog is católico. Yet with the power of God's word, as it entered into their hearts, I saw the immovable former believers and Catholic saints become Latter-day Saints themselves. 
Victor Felix, a Baptist minister for 23 years, humbly entering the waters of baptism to begin a new life in a church without professional clergy. As for rivers, water just looks for the easiest way downhill, the laziest path to the sea. I met a lot of rivers on my mission as well, meandering souls with no set direction, just going with the flow in directions that always seemed downhill. But the gospel took hold of them, and I watched them change, digging deep channels of righteousness that even flowed uphill, like the nations that Isaiah saw in his vision of the Latter-day Temple, flowing up to the mountain of the Lord. What then of waves? Again, as a Southern Californian and as a missionary in the Caribbean, I have a love-hate relationship with waves. Few things can be so peaceful one moment and so dangerously powerful the next. Imagine commanding in the name of Jesus either aspect, either calling them to pound away at our weaknesses, which often seem so immune to our efforts at eroding them, or saying, peace be still, to the waves of doubt and despair that relentlessly eat away at our faith. The trees, the mountains, the rivers, the waves, each are obedient to the name of Jesus. If only our scriptural witnesses will empower us to build unshaken faith and hope in him. Just don't let it go to your head. Throughout that empowerment, the Lord will continue to show us our weakness so that his grace and great condescensions will be drawn out in even bolder relief. Notice that here the Lord speaks of weakness, not weaknesses, a distinction he also draws when encouraging Moroni in Ether 12:27, which is a sister scripture to Jacob's verse. It's our weakness, our humanity, that awakens our reliance on the Lord. That will always be there, drawing us to Jesus, even while we and he are working at correcting weaknesses, the specific sins and compromises of character we frequently fall into. Of course, weakness and weaknesses are related. The latter seems to grow out of the former. But while succumbing to our weaknesses calls for the mercy of Jesus, our inherent inescapable weakness calls down an endless supply of his enabling grace. Knowing the source of that strength, no wonder Jacob ministered much unto his people in word. It was the word of God, whether on plates of brass or plates of gold, that allowed his people to search the prophets and gain from their unshaken faith. It's what made it worth it to engrave in those words on metal plates in the first place, in spite of the difficulty and diligent labor such painstaking effort required. Every subsequent advance in technology has made the word easier to produce and distribute, but I sometimes wonder if we've gained outward portability at the cost of inward permanence. The Nephite prophets knew that anything less permanent than plates must perish and vanish away, which explains the need to engraven. Like Jesus said to his apostles, he not only wanted their work to be productive, he wanted it to remain. President Henry B. Iron has warned that great faith has a short shelf life. So the deeper we carve it into our souls, the longer it will stay there. No wonder Paul brought up the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, but then encouraged his readers to seek the spirit of the living God in order to have his word etched not in the tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Unfortunately for engravers, our hearts aren't always very fleshy, which is why Jacob hoped that his beloved brethren and even his more beloved children would receive those words with thankful and joyful hearts, instead of with sorrow and contempt regarding those sources. I've seen both from my own children during our sporadic but undaunted attempts at family scripture study. We even secretly filmed our kids during one episode in order to show it at the adult session of state conference. With one of my daughters making a hat out of a placemat, which she proudly wore throughout our study, 
and one of my sons repeatedly flexing his muscles to even more proudly see his reflection in the sliding glass door, only occasionally interrupted with moments of insight and signs of the spirit, my kids were horrified when we finally told them we'd caught it all on film. But after that state conference debut, countless couples thanked us for having the courage to show them our raw reality. I guess we're all still figuring out how to help our children learn with joy. But that, but what is it that we're, that we're trying to teach them? What is it that the prophets were trying to get across? That they knew of Christ and had a hope of his glory. Long before that hope found actual fulfillment in the future coming of Christ. That's the message they were engraving. Jesus, the ultimate source of unshaken faith. That's why they wrote what they wrote. And more importantly, it's why they did what they did. Building that hope and faith in Christ was the intent for which they kept the law of Moses. It's what gives spiritual power to otherwise empty actions. It's what sharpens our faith whenever religion starts feeling like a daily grind. It's what keeps our souls pointed to him in a world so full of distractions. And borrowing from Abraham's example, it's what sanctifies our sacrifices, engraving each with the image of Christ. All this helps us hear the music, making the dance steps flow naturally in time, not arbitrary or forced like they sometimes feel. For all of these reasons, Jacob spends the bulk of this short chapter pointing his listeners and his Latter-day readers back to the Word of God. Wherefore, meaning consequently, or for those reasons, we search the prophets. It's why he pleads with his people not to despise the revelations of God. It's why he urges them not to counsel the Lord, but instead to take counsel from his hand, all in the hopes that by knowing Christ, we would be reconciled through his perfect atonement, and thus be resurrected with the assurance that we are welcome in the presence of God. While Jacob is looking back to Abraham and all the holy prophets, I hope he'll excuse me a brief glance forward to Jacob's own son, Enos. We'll study him more in depth another time, but I wonder what kind of kid he was during family scripture study. We know he was a hunter. Would he have been the one flexing his muscles instead of focusing his mind? We know he prayed all day and all night before he finally received a remission of his sins. What had he been doing all those days and nights his father was trying to teach him? There's no way of knowing for sure, but I wonder, did a younger Enos approach the scriptures or his prophet father with sorrow or contempt? Did he ever despise the revelations that were always only a conversation away? Just ask my kids. The gospel can sometimes feel inescapable when it means everything to your parents. So did Enos fit the stereotype of what my evangelical friends abbreviate as PK, a preacher's kid? He did say that on that life-changing hunting expedition, what sunk into his heart were the things that he had often heard his father speak. These were the things that were always on Jacob's mind, and evidently seldom far from his lips. They had made his faith unshaken, and perhaps his greatest anxiety was ensuring that they would make his son's faith unshaken as well. No wonder, Jacob said, perhaps to Enos as much as to anyone else, marvel not that I tell you these things. Don't be surprised that I would bring up the gospel as often as occasion permits. I remember one day when my kids were little, and we were listening to spiritual music in the car. It was a weekday, and all of a sudden one of my kids got a confused look on their face and asked, Is it Sunday? How sad that they assumed that tapping into sources of the Spirit was confined to the Sabbath, as if that were the only day we were permitted to speak or sing of Jesus. We may call the Sabbath the Lord's Day, but doesn't he really belong in all seven? So why not speak of the atonement of Christ? 
What more important conversation topic could there possibly be? He is the rock upon which we build a sure foundation. He is the answer to every anxiety. He plucks out trees of bitterness and moves mountains in stubborn souls. He digs channels for wandering rivers and walks upon the waves of stormy seas. His truths are worth engraving upon our fleshy tables, and his spirit is the key to learning with joy. So search the prophets who came to know him best. Change your prayers from to-do lists in which we counsel God to open books in which we take counsel from his hand. And in ways that feel natural and relevant, speak of the atonement of Christ until your children stop marveling that you would do so and start marveling instead at all that Jesus has done for them. There's no more powerful way of making your faith unshaken. Thank you for spending the last few minutes with me. I hope you felt your faith become a little more unshaken as we've studied Jacob chapter 4 together. If you really want to engrave these principles more deeply into your heart, then pause on this screen and consider these questions. Pondering these principles will allow the Holy Ghost to teach you the truths far beyond anything I've been able to teach you. And that's how faith really becomes unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and it's been a privilege to learn together. As always, if this experience has fortified your faith, or if you think it might serve to steady the shaken, please like, subscribe, comment, or share. Thank you for being an active part in expanding the Savior's virtual cloud of witnesses.